to you, has done youth ministry and preaching for several years. I'm not going to tell you how long I'll let him tell you. Uh, he's married to Rhonda. They have two boys, which he brought with him, Jackson and Parker, which I've met and had a wonderful supper with. And so, Jeff, come and talk to us. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. So glad to be here tonight. It's been about 25 years since I was on campus here in any regularity. I graduated from Converse Judson High School 25 years ago. And uh, I've got to tell you, a lot has changed about this place. I know you've expanded this room. I was telling somebody, it still smells the same. It still smells, it has the same smell. And then when you come to a place like this where you hadn't seen people in a long time, there's, I'm just going to tell you, there's a lot of ghosts that inhabit a place like this. And you turn around the corner and there's some people that I expect to see. And I'll be honest with you, they've, they've gone on to be with the Lord. And, and I'll give you an example tonight. I was standing here and this, this old shadowy figure came through that door. And it looked like the ghost of Norris Elam. And, and, and I got close and I thought, what an ancient bones must haunt this place. And I walked over and it was really Norris Elam. That's, that's old, folks. Uh, hey, I hope you've been having a great summer walking through James together. You're going to need your Bibles tonight. I'm going to be all over the place. We're going to anchor... Our, our lesson tonight in John chapter 8, but there's a lot of other uh, scriptures that I want to give to you. Hopefully some will be on the screen. Maybe you can jot some of those down. Uh, if I start talking too fast, throw a shoe at me. I'm saying that over here to whoever has to translate for me. God bless you and bless your hands. She's going to be tired tonight. I asked my dad what I should speak about tonight. And he said about 20 minutes and sit down. And so, boy, that's not going to happen. He's an optimist, isn't he? He doesn't know me. In John chapter 8, we get this I am statement of Jesus, and it comes on the heels. We want to look at the history and the context of why Jesus says this. And it's anchored in a story that we say in some texts, in some early manuscripts, it wasn't recorded. But I can't think of really a better story, a better encounter uh, that Jesus had with anybody as he walked on the earth to say, I'm the light of the world to, than this lady that we read about tonight. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using his, this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus went down and started to write on the sand with, in the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard uh, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman Standing, still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. But neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And when Jesus had spoken again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. There's two kinds of light that I think of when I, when I think about religion. There's uh, the black light. You know what a black light is? 
maybe, maybe you remember some Sunday school classes where the teachers had these, these beautiful paintings and they, they looked weird, but then you turned on a black light and you could see all these wonderful things. Or maybe when in, my, in my youth ministry days, we used to have black light uh, volleyball and we had a neon ball and we'd turn off all the lights and we'd turn on black lights and we'd play volleyball. Uh, but if you've ever been anywhere with a black light that might show you where dirt and stains are, you don't want that kind of light. That's the kind of light the Pharisees bring, don't they? They bring a black light to show you every imperfection, everything that's wrong with you, and they want Jesus to be that kind of a light. But Jesus says, I'm not that kind of a light. I'm, I, I, I think of Jesus as a, as a flashlight. The flashlight you had when you got under the covers when you were seven, and you were scared. Enough light to show you the way, enough light to show you that there's nothing scary in the corner. Enough light to tell you that there's nothing that can get to you. Enough light that can show you how to get from where you're going to where you need to be. That's the kind of light that Jesus brings. It's uh, what we call an extended metaphor or, or an analogy. It's a, it's a literary device that John uses, and he uses a bunch of them. That's what you guys are studying all summer. These great literary devices. The Washington Post once had a, a, a contest for the worst analogies. These are the worst analogies. Okay? And people sent them in from different uh, school, school kids. I, I love these. The little boat gently drifted across the pond exactly the way a bowling ball wouldn't. Is good? <laughs> Long separated by cruel fate, the star-crossed lovers raced across the grassy fields toward each other like two freight trains. One having left Cleveland at 6.36 p.m. traveling at 55 miles per hour. The other from Topeka at 4.19 p.m. at the speed of 35 miles per hour. This one was sent in by Russell from Springfield. John and Mary had never met. They were just like two hummingbirds who had also never met. (laughs) From the attic came an unearthly howl. The whole scene had an eerie, surreal quality. Like when you're on vacation in another city and Jeopardy comes on at 7 p.m. instead of 7.30. (laughs) He spoke with a wisdom that can only come from experience. Like a guy who went blind because he looked at a solar eclipse without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it. And now goes around the country speaking at high schools about the dangers of looking at solar eclipses without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it. That kid's got some promise. He's a writer. I like language and i like the artful turn of a phrase and if you grew up in the south you've heard a lot of them right six of one half dozen of another you're robbing peter to pay paul one time we were in a situation where i described it as that's like robbing to peter to pay paul and somebody turned to me a coworker turned to me and said yes jeff that's exactly what it's like they've never heard that phrase before and i said that's because i made it up right we, speaking of southern things, we've done the most South Texas stuff uh, just in the last 24 hours. I took my two boys with me, Jackson's 8 and Parker's 6, and we came down and we, uh, we shopped at H-E-B, amen. We ate breakfast tacos from Taco Cabana. We floated the river in San Marcos. Uh, we went on a glass-bottom boat ride. If I want to be more South Texas, i got to drink Bill Miller iced tea while defending the Alamo. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is where we're at. It's those words and phrases that John so beautifully puts together that paints a masterpiece of who Jesus is. 
Because when we go to try to describe God's love, we say things, oh, kind of like we sang tonight in poetic language. We say that God's love is deeper than the ocean and wider than the sea. We compare his love to the love of a mother. We use all of these beautiful phrases and wonderful expressions to say how great God's love is for us. But with John's story, John's painting, John's song begins in the dark. And so to appreciate the picture that he's painting, you really have to start in the dark. You have to conceptualize nothing. John starts in the dark when there is nothing before there was anything. It was God. It was the Word. And there was Jesus, and they were together, and they created together. You probably don't like the dark any more than I do, any more than my kids do. How does it feel to be in the dark? You're lost, you're unsure, you're afraid. And you start to imagine things, you start to conjure up things that aren't really there. We even use that phrase, in the dark, to mean that I'm not educated on that subject. I don't have the information that I need, that I'm somehow in the dark. And so this darkness, into this darkness, Jesus brings light. And the light of Jesus is illumination. It's information. It's transformation. It's salvation. Stop me before I I get some more shuns in there, right? It's assurance. It's calmness. It's peace. It's the feeling that everything's going to be all right. I love one of my favorite authors is a lady by the name of Barbara Brown Taylor. And she wrote in her book, uh, Learning to Walk in the Dark, she talks about uh, wanting to, to commune with God and wanting to find a place that was completely dark. And so she goes in Oregon and she finds a cave. I imagine this to be much like our natural bridge caverns or any of the other caverns that you might have been around here. And they go to the, she goes to that place that's completely dark. And she writes this about her experience. I love this. She says, resurrection is always announced with Easter lilies. The sound of trumpets. Bright, streaming light, but it did not happen that way. It happened in a cave. It happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness, in the smell of a damp stone, and, 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 and earth hung in the air. Let this sink in, she says. New life starts in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground, or a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, life starts in the dark. And so our story in John 8 starts in some pitch black darkness. A woman caught in the act of adultery. A group of men ready to, to stone and accuse her and cruelly punish her. An angry mob, much like the, the same mob that Jesus will face just chapters from now. And Jesus uses these beautiful images of light to describe what God is like. He's in good company. We've always known God to express himself as light. You go back to the psalmist into Psalm 4. You're going to write this down. Psalm 4, 6. David sings, let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. Or in Psalm 43, oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me out to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. We sing the song, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Or here again, those words that I alluded to from John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 4, in Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. 
And so here's Jesus. Here's Jesus shining his light into inky blackness. John loves that image. We find it in his gospel. We find it uh, in his epistles. We find it there in, in 1 John. If you go to 1 John and just read about the first half of 1 John, all, it's just light everywhere, right? Uh, in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us. John knew what it was to walk in the light because he had walked with the light. He had had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the light. He had gone fishing with the light. He had heard the light's jokes and stories and sermons, and he had seen the light pray to his father and give honor to his mother. John knew the light intimately, and that's why John defends the truth so adamantly. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and that light shines in our life and that light's not a black light to tell us everything that we've done wrong and show us every bit of insecurities it's the light to point the way so there's this great image i want you to see uh, this next picture it's a it's an artist rendering of what the temple looked like i told you i wanted to anchor uh, this this story in some history well jesus makes this statement i am the light of the world right on the tail end of this this thing called the feast of the tabernacles And in the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would light, you can kind of see, uh, these four large candelabras. They're huge. Um, In the temple, there's these four massive candelabras. It took 20 gallons of oil. You can go to the next picture. It kind of shows it maybe a little bit better. You can see how much they they lit up the night. And uh, I'm reminded, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of... of, uh, Friday nights in the fall in Texas. And you're driving out some country road or you crest over a hill and there's a light right off in the distance and it lights everything up and there's the smell of popcorn and there's the smell of hot dogs and there's the the beating of the drums of the marching band and you can hear the crash of the helmets. And it's in that kind of a moment the next day after those those uh, huge candelabras have been doused. They can still smell the, the oil in the air as Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And they can't help but think back to that wonderful feast. I'm the light of the world. I love how one poet, Marian Williamson, she talks about our light. She says, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? And then I love, I love this response. Who are you not to be? Who are you not to be? You are a child of God. You're playing small. Does it serve the world? There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We're all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And it's not just in some of us, she says. It's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. It's why this idea of Jesus being the light goes hand in hand with something he said in Matthew 5. Not only does Jesus say, I am the light of the world, but he says what? You are the light of the world. And then, is it Brad? 
Thank you for leading us tonight. And what great songs. We didn't plan any of that, folks. And, and it was like he was reading my notes. But, but that passage there in 1 Peter 2, Peter says, you want to know who you are? You're a royal you're a royal people. You're a chosen nation. You're people belonging to God. You're God's special possession because he called you out of darkness into his light. The fact that we are the light of the world has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God because we're the reflected glory of God. In this solar system, you're the moon and he's the sun. And don't get it twisted. Don't get it backwards. All we do is, is reflect the light of God. If we are the light of the world, it's not because it comes from inside of us or anything that we've done, but we shine through our salvation. And our salvation is nothing that we brag about, is it? It's all about what God has done for us and in us and through us. The light doesn't emanate from inside of us. Instead, it comes from a different source. We shine through our salvation. If you're one who, who likes to fill in blanks, I, I want to make sure I get all the blanks here. We're going to shine through our salvation, but we're also going to shine through our suffering. I love music. I love that some of these songs tonight, Brad, were new for me. I love learning new songs, but I don't know if you're a fan of contemporary Christian music. Some of it's good, some of it's not. And uh, there's, one, there, there's one song that really captured not just my attention, but the, I think the attention of the world a few years back, and it's from John Mark McMillan. And he writes this song beautifully. He says, he is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the wind and weight of his mercy. When all of a sudden I'm unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And of course, it's like every chorus in contemporary Christian music. It repeats itself over and over again. And that's fine because the chorus is this. And by the way, I should say, you, if you don't like courses that repeat themselves over and over, you better stay out of heaven because that's what they do up there. No, they never stop saying, holy, holy is the Lord, okay? That's what they do, night and day. It's, it's all praise songs up there. And, uh, but, but they sing, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And what's amazing to me is that John Mark wrote that song out of a time of complete brokenness. He was following the death of his best friend, a young man named Stephen Coffey, and Coffey was a youth minister at the time. McMillan wrote those lines as a tribute to his friend, and out of a need, he said to have some sort of conversation with God, and where he could speak about his frustrations and his emotions, uh, about his best friend's death. And according to McMillan, he says, he says, uh, he says, how he loves, that's the name of the song, is not a pretty Hollywood hot pink kind of love. It's kind of love that's willing to love even when things are difficult and messy. He says this song isn't a celebration of, isn't a celebration of weakness and anger. It's a celebration of a God who would want to t- hang with us through those things. A God who would want to be part of our lives through those things. And despite of who we are, he would want to be a part of us, our community, our family. How he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. That's the kind of light that Jesus brings into our life. And so we shine through our salvation and we shine through our suffering. I always love to ask this question whenever I show this, this next picture. Does anybody recognize this is a famous uh, American uh, mon- a monumental place? He's, you got it? You got it? You've been there? I bet you don't. You've been there? Anybody recognize it? 
I asked this at a youth, youth retreat one time, and I was amazed that several hands shot up, and they knew exactly where this was. This is the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Anybody starting to make some sense now? I want to tell you the story of, of this place. It was in the early morning on a Sunday, September 15th, 1963, when four, four members of the Ku Klux Klan group planted a box of dynamite to detonate right under the steps of this church. It was about 10.22 a.m. when 26 small children were walking into the basement assembly room when that bomb went off. And these four sweet children, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Weasley were all killed in the attack. 22 other people were injured. And if you remember this, some of you were alive at the time. You lived through this piece of American history. If you remember what happened, it it, it blew a hole in the church's rear wall. It destroyed the back steps. And every piece of glass in the church building was destroyed except for one. I want to show you a picture of it. It was a stained glass piece that depicted Jesus. And can you see the hole? It blew a hole right through the face of Jesus. And as offers poured in around the country for support to help rebuild this church, stonemasons, community groups, everyone wanted to help them to rebuild and and, and put a new beautiful face on the building of this church, the church leaders decided to leave this, this window as it was. And I love what they said about that decision. They decided that they would shine through shine through the the destruction and hate of the event. The sermon that was planned to be given that morning was entitled, The Love That Forgives. And so that's what they did. They decided that they would respond to their suffering in a way that would give glory and honor to Jesus Christ. I want to show you a picture of that, that window today. There it is. Fully restored and beautiful. We have to shine through our suffering. But then, here's what it means for us, church. This is, this is where we go from here. We've got to shine through our service. Proverbs 11. Though the blessing, through, excuse me, through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but the mouth of the wicked is destroyed. And in, in maybe a different uh, way that your ears can hear that. Upright citizens bless a city. And make it prosper, but the talk of the wicked tears it apart. If the MacArthur Park Church of Christ wants to make an impact, if they want to let the light of Jesus shine through them, then they're going to be a light to the city, a beacon of hope. They're going to be the, the conduit through which that light is carried. And at the end of that are going to be meals that are served and needs that are met and hands that are held and and structures that are rebuilt and lives that are put back together and and time that's spent with people who need counseling and all the dirty, ugly work that needs to be done in the darkness. Because make no mistake, the world is still dark. In the aftermath of Katrina, the event that many of us remember so clearly in 2005, Scores of church groups rushed down there to work to rebuild that city. And what was really interesting to me was a, a piece that was written in the Guardian newspaper uh, from an atheist, a, a man by the name of Roy Hattersley. And he writes this 
Notable by their absence are teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations. The sort of people who do not only scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity, but also regard it as a positive force of evil. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Or better still, to take Christianity a la carte. The Bible's so full of contradictions. This is an atheist writing this. It's so full of contradictions that we cannot accept or reject its moral advice according to taste. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. And he says this. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives. That while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make them morally superior to atheists like me. Church, the whole world is watching. They're waiting to see what people who claim the name of Christ are going to do. They've long tired of debating us about what we think and what we know and what we can prove. They just don't care. Instead, they want to see if the light makes any manifest difference in a dark world. I I have a wonderful opportunity this weekend to speak at the funeral of one of my very good friends. She, uh, she and I met when I was the youth minister over, not too far from this building, over the Ventura Church of Christ, just down the road. And uh, she, was a, she, she grew up, got out of youth group, went to ACU, and uh, was a, a theater teacher. And one of the first shows I ever went to see her direct, I watched her kids in, was this, this show, it was, a, it was a, an adaptation of the book, Everything I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgham. Do you know that book? And there's this amazing story at the end. I think it's in the end of the book. I know it's at the end of the play. I don't want to share it with you tonight. We're going to end with this. Uh, but that's really kind of, a, kind of a tribute to her, to my friend Sarah, who went to be with the Lord uh, uh, yesterday. I want you to hear this story. It's a story that happens on the Isle of Crete. Uh, on, a, on, a, on a, 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 one of those places of higher learning, one of those ivory towers, a place where people came to study. And there was a man who taught up on that hill, this beautiful Greek hill in the island of Crete, a man by the name of Alexander Papaderos. That's a mouthful. And it was the last session of the last morning of a two-week-long seminar, one of those where you go to class at 8 in the morning and you don't get out till late at night. And it was led by intellectuals and experts in their field who'd been recruited across the whole nation. And here was Dr. Papaderos who rose from his chair from the back of the room and he walked to the front. And he stood in this bright Greek sunlight of this open window and he looked out And he followed his gaze down to this German cemetery. If you know anything of the history of World War II, you know some of the most vile fighting happened there in Greece. It was one of the major ports. I digress into history lesson too much, but to tell you that a lot of horrific things happened in this place, it'll make sense here in a minute. He turned at the end of his lecture and he made a final kind of ritualistic gesture and he said, are there any questions? And that's the question where nobody's supposed to say anything, right? You're not, you're just, you just be quiet. Okay, don't remind the teacher that he hasn't given us homework. And one smart aleck in the back 
said, Dr. Papaderos, what is the meaning of life? And the usual laughter followed, and they hoped that he would dismiss class at, you know, at such a silly question. Instead, he held up his hand, and he waved for silence. And he got very serious, he got very stoic, and he said, I will answer your question. And he reached into his wallet, and he fumbled around with his keys and his coins, and he produced a, a small little circular mirror. It was rough. It wasn't quite you know, perfectly circular. And he showed the class this round little mirror. It was about the size of a quarter. And he said, when I was a child, small child during the Great War, we were very, very poor, and we lived in this remote village. And one day on the road, I found these pieces of a broken mirror, and it had come, come off a German motorcycle that had wrecked right there. I tried to find all the pieces to put them back together, but it wasn't possible. And instead, I took this one larger piece, and I took a stone, and I made a game of scratching it to try to see if I could smooth it out and make it completely round. And then I began to play with it. Once I had gotten it fashioned to fit my hand, I began to play with it, and I tried to shine light into dark places. You ever do that maybe with the the face of your watch when you were a kid? And he said, "I, I found that I could take the light of the sun and I could shine it into deep holes and crevices and dark closets. It became a game to me to get light into the most inaccessible places I could find. I kept that little mirror, and as I went about my growing up, I would take it out in idle moments and continue the challenge of the game. And as I became a man, I grew to understand that this was not just a child's game, but a metaphor for what I might do with my life. I came to understand that I am not the light or the source of light, but light, truth, love, justice is there. And it will only shine in dark places if I reflect it. I am a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and shape I do not know. Nevertheless, with what I have, I can reflect light into the dark places of this world, into the black places in the hearts of men, and change some things in some people. Perhaps others may see and do likewise. This is what I'm about. This is the meaning of life. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Give yourself permission this week to shine. Live into the words of Jesus. Be the light in a dark world. Don't let self-doubt or embarrassment or anxiety keep you from being who God created you to be. Live up to his expectations because, after all, he created you to shine. And as you shine, don't be surprised if others join in as well. Oh, one more thing. How he loves us. A few years back, there was a, one of those college preachers the obnoxious ones, that go with a bullhorn and yell at people and tell, tell them who God hates and who God wants to go to hell. And there was a group, a Christian group on campus who said, we don't need this guy representing Christ to, the, to our friends. And so they said, what should we do? How could we shut him down? And somebody said, let's steal his bullhorn. And another said, well, let's go and you know, kidnap him. There was all these great plans that they had. And another one, a smart one, came up with the idea, what if we went and just worshipped where he was? And so everywhere this preacher went spewing hate, 
they went singing. You know what they sang? He loves us, oh how he loves us. Oh how he loves us, oh how he loves. And the louder he shouted, the louder they sang. And the chorus that rang out in the ears of those young students was not one of hate, but one of love. That the light is coming to the world. And we ought to shine.